Blog Talk Radio. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Movie Attic Headquarters with your host, Betty Jo Tucker, author of Confessions of a Movie Attic, right here at www.blogtalkradio.com. out there. This is Betty Jo Tucker thanking you for tuning in to Movie Attic Headquarters. You don't have to be a movie addict to visit here, but if you are one, it's definitely the place for you, especially today, because Joan Kramer and David Healy are here to discuss in the Company of Legends their new behind-the-scenes book about the marvelous movie star documentaries they work together on. Starting with their award-winning Profiles of Fred Astaire in 1980, Kramer and Healy produced film portraits of the lives and careers of so many Hollywood legends, most of them my favorites, too, including Spencer Tracy, Humphrey Bogart, Catherine Hepburn, Paul Newman, Judy Garland, Jimmy Stewart, and Henry Fonda. And you know, folks, I think they wrote this book just for me. At least that's how I felt while reading their terrific showbiz memoir. Although they reveal fascinating information about some of our favorite classic movie stars, their book also describes how they put together their film portraits despite almost insurmountable obstacles. And I so admire how their individual talents gelled in wonderful teamwork and their powers of persuasion that shine through in every chapter, as does their inspiring persistence. Plus, the book is full of suspense, and I loved every page. I agree with Robert Osborne, host of Turner Classic Movies, who calls In the Company of Legends one of the best reasons ever for curling up with a book. Now, I think I've whet your appetite to hear from this dynamic duo, but before bringing them on, let's see if Nikki Starr is ready to help with the show. Nikki, are all systems go in the chat room? They are. We're all very excited for the show and cannot wait to hear everything. Yes, and we're going to extend the show for 15 minutes because we don't want to rush David and uh, Joan. And thank you, Nikki, for uh, being with us. I I know you're kind of recuperating from uh, about the pneumonia, so you're a real trooper. You really believe the show must go on. Yes. (laughs) Thanks for Thank you for being here, and thanks to the people who sign up for the chat. We really appreciate them, as well as all our other listeners, of course. We also appreciate Joan and David for taking the time to be with us today, and it's my pleasure to bring them on now, ladies first, as always, here on Movie Attic Headquarters. Welcome to Movie Attic Headquarters, Joan. Thank you for asking us. We're delighted to be here. Well, it's great to have you on our show, and the same goes true for your colleague, David Healy. David, thanks for being a guest today on it's Movie Attic Headquarters. It's a thrill, Betty We're so glad to be here. Well, we're, we're just uh, delighted that you both could be with us. I want to congratulate both of you for these outstanding documentaries and for writing about them. I, I think you've worked, if I remember correctly, you've worked together for about... 30 years and 18 biopics, and I'm curious what that was like. David, what is there about Joan that made her a great partner for the documentaries about uh, Hollywood legends? Well, but you know, we, we, we come from very different backgrounds, and in fact, we have yes. quite different personalities, which is a, a benefit, because uh, to always be agreeing doesn't always get you where you want to go, and so we, we disagree quite often, but that, that brings <laughs> us to, to a better place, I think. Uh, Joan's huge talent is, uh, among her many huge talents, <laughs> her biggest <laughs> is that on the phone she can persuade anybody to do anything. <laughs> Once she calls you, you you're probably hooked. Uh, I'm I, I'm I'm not so good on the phone. I can do the phone calls. I can do the uh, making friends bit on the phone. But I'm I, I don't have that innate talent that Joan has there. And uh, I mean, one case in point is when we were doing the program about Errol Flynn, 
And we we were told that his widow, Patrice Wymore, lived in Jamaica, but she always refused to talk about Errol. Uh, But Joe managed to get a phone number and reached her. And by the end of the conversation, Pat had said, come down to Jamaica. I'd like to meet the two of you. (laughs) (laughs) That's an invaluable talent, I think. For what you were, what you were. Thank you, trying. David. That was a, uh, that was lovely. <laughs> and I will be so kind later, John. How true, huh? but now, I didn't hear what he did. I just said I won't be so kind later. I'm sure you won't. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, now is your turn, Joe. Now I'm asking you the same question. What's what's there about David that made him uh, a great partner for these film portraits? Well, as he said, we have very different talents. He grew. He he. He started out in the world of science with a physics degree and became an engineer at the BBC in London. He got his degree from Oxford and wound up at at, at the BBC in London. I am hopeless when it comes to technical things. David is brilliant at it because he was an engineer and he has a science background. At the same time, he's British, he's a man, he's a director. There are certain people that he talks to, and they are, you know, smitten immediately. <laughs> the British accent does it every time. Yes, I I feel that way. <laughs> and he's also a, a terrific director. And so, you know, the calm, David's calm, I'm not. <laughs> David's constant refrain is, Joan, calm down. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it sounds like uh, Nikki and I working together because she's all, uh, I'm kind of excitable and nervous, and she's always saying, oh, it'll be all right, it'll be all right. It's her version of calm down. Yes. <laughs> but, well, it sounds like you two really complement each other, and uh, I want to compliment both of you for, for the work that uh, that you've done. I'm uh, Of course, as a movie addict, I really just this this was mother's milk to me i mean reading your book and because i have enjoyed the documentaries and um i was wondering if you could tell our listeners why you chose fred astaire as your first subject david could you start with that one well it it uh, it, it started john and i were working together on a series at uh, wnet in new york which is the uh, the new york public television station it was called skyline and it was about the arts in the uh, new york city area which of course is a, a very deep topic you can you could fill hours a week with that and we we would we did one of our programs um interviewing rudolf nureyev the ballet dancer. Ah. He was in town to dance with the Joffrey Ballet, recreating some Nijinsky roles. And uh, Joan managed to hook him in her usual way, and he agreed to be interviewed. Uh, but out of that, and I'm going to let Joan pick up the story here, out of that came the Fred Astaire show. Joan, explain why. Well, I knew Nureyev because I used to be a dancer. So when I booked him on the Dick Cavett show, um, I, I booked him because I knew him, and I knew how to get to him. Um, And he said to me, you know, I'm crazy about Fred Astaire. He's the greatest American dancer in history, and I've never met him. Can you make that happen? Well, Joanne Woodward was an old friend of mine by then, and I told David about this idea, and we asked Joanne if she, who's an avid dance aficionado, who knew Nureyev and Fred Astaire, if we could put together a talk show where she would interview both of them. Well, Nureyev said yes immediately, and Mystere turned us down flat. And it evolved, oh. <laughs> and it evolved into a program, about, uh, into a profile of Fred Astaire, which Joanne narrated, and Nureyev was on. I never did get them to meet. Oh, wow. Well... Is there in this uh, situation with uh, with Fred Astaire, um, there were there were some uh, rough cuts that you you showed him. There was problems. There were problems about getting uh, getting his uh, routines. The, the, uh, the film routine. As you probably realize, Betty Joe, from reading the book, there's not a single program that goes smoothly. There's always a point where you think the whole project's going to collapse at your feet and it'll be just a mess. And, and, and the Estes program started out that way in one respect because he just refused to cooperate. 
uh, the, the, one of the first calls we got from his agent was, Mr. Astaire is furious. Please go away. <laughs> <laughs> but we persisted. And uh, eventually we got another call from the agent to say, because of your tenacity, Mr. Astaire has agreed to let you make the programs. To what let we, you... What we didn't realize was we needed his approval because uh, even though he's a public figure, which and any, a public figure, anybody can make a program about them, even though he's a public figure, his lawyer in the 1930s was very clever and inserted a clause in his contracts with RKO that gave him control over his clips. We didn't know that. And so without his approval, we couldn't do the show. So it was, it was really a, quite uh, far-seeing in the future. I mean, nobody in the 1930s was using clips. So, no. so get, getting his, I said to Joan at the time, I said, oh, big deal, we were going to do the show anyway. Then I discovered later it was a big deal. <laughs> we needed his approval. But one, there, was, there was a little bit of a rider to this approval, uh, which his agent said to us. He said, oh, and by the way, um, Mr. Stair would like to see a rough cut before you put your show to bed. Now, this oh. was really a sting in the tail because Stair was known to be a perfectionist. And he'd be, he'd, in, in the past, when, he, when, when RKO was producing the Astaire Rogers films, there's even an incident uh, noted where he asked RKO to pour in all the prints because he saw one in the theater and didn't like what he saw. So wow. we, it was with some trepidation that we went to Los Angeles with a tape of a rough cut uh, in our hands to show to him. And when we say rough cut, it was very, very rough indeed. Uh, these were quite early days of, of editing. The film clips were very low quality. Where we should have stills, we just had black uh, slugs in the in the cut. Um, Joanne Wood was, would eventually narrate it, but at this time it was just a very rough narration with my voice. So what we're showing him was pretty bad in a, from a technical point of view. Mm-hmm. And so you can imagine how we were feeling when we pressed the start button and sat him in front of the TV, and we... We carefully sat behind him so that we could observe him as he was watching the tape. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so, and on top of which, Nikki, you will understand this, David was really sick. By the time we left ooh. New York and got to L.A., he had the flu. And he said to me, if he gives us a rough time in this screening, I don't know how I'm going to handle this. I know that was part of one of the suspenseful things in the book. <laughs> of course, <laughs> we got was, through it. How that was going, how that was going to, to work out, but it it did work out because I mean, uh, didn't that the first one that you did on Fred Astaire didn't it receive an uh, Emmy? Yeah, we actually did a, a, a couple of programs. It was a pair of programs, and they both were nominated for Emmys, and the second one won, which was of course. A great start because it was a stamp of approval for us. So it showed people that we knew how to make these programs, and I think it made the stepping stone to the next program for us, getting the Emmy on yes. that. Well, it, um, <clears throat> it, it it was wonderful. I do I do remember. And uh, but I but before we leave, Mr. Astaire, I wanted to ask about. Um, uh, how you managed to get Ginger Rogers to participate that's that's a, a really interesting part of your of your book and uh Joan uh why was Ginger you know not um, not so uh not so eager to participate in uh, a biography or a biopic about Fred Astaire well once Ginger won an academy award as best actress for Kitty Foyle in 1940. She felt that she was an actress in her own right and didn't want to constantly talk about her movies, uh, the films that she made with Astaire, but everybody wanted to ask her about those films with him. Oh, yeah. And so when we wrote, I wrote her a letter, and the answer came back quite quickly, no. (laughs) And then (laughs) I think I tried a second time, and it came back again quickly, no. And that's when I said, David, it needs your voice. And David pulled himself together, as Catherine Hepburn would use that phrase, pull yourself together. David pulled himself together and called her. And they talked for about 45 minutes. And at the end of it, she said, hmm, let me think about it. Because, David, tell, I mean, we decided that the only way to get Ginger was to ask her to talk about those movies from her point of view, 
Yes, yeah. we, 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 we realized that once we asked her to talk about Fred, she was going to say no. So mm-hmm. I said to her, Ms. Rogers, what we're really interested in is what it was like for you to do, perform these numbers, what it was like to rehearse. How was it in those, those, those beautiful gowns, and, but on those shiny floors in high heels? You, you must have great stories to tell us about that. And she said, hmm, let me think about it. <laughs> and then the, the other thing she said, she said, um, she told me that uh, in a couple of weeks' time she was going to be honored by the Maskers Club in Los Angeles. Now, frankly, I, 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 in my ignorance, I didn't know what the Maskers Club was. I, I do know now. But I said, well, let, let me see if we can find a way to, to film that. And uh, that was a way to kind of pull her in. And so as, the end, as Joan said, at the end of the conversation, she said, let me think about it. Call me back in a few days. So David called her in a few days, and I was in the room. And at one point, I saw him turn pink. And <laughs> I, when he got off the phone, I said to him, what, was, what happened? Well, in the middle of all the good news of her saying, yes, come to Palm Springs, be ready, at, come at 1 o'clock, I'll be ready at 2, I'll do my own hair, I'll do my own makeup, she said suddenly, you're British, you're quite charming, young man. <laughs> that's when I saw him blush, and that's when I said, told you so. <laughs> <laughs> it never, it never fails. It never yay, fails. Yay. <laughs> well, those, those uh, two Fred Astaire <laughs> film portraits, um, I want to make sure that the listeners know the, the title of them. And, of course, it's uh, Fred Astaire putting on his top hat, and Fred Astaire changed partners and dance. And so you must have really uh, won him over for sure to to be able to do a, a second uh, film portrait of him. Uh, were there Was there one of those that's, that's your uh, favorite, or, or do you have fond feelings about both of them? I think they both worked in their own way. Uh, the first one really concentrated on the Astaire-Rogers partnership. And then the second one, as you guess from its t- the title, Change Partners and Dance, was, was his uh, dancing with other people and, uh, and the st- how his style changed. And in the second show, we, we brought on choreographers to talk about Astaire, to evaluate him. We had Bob Fosse on, for example, oh, and Jerome, hey. Jerome Robbins. Uh, so we we had a, a startling and Honey Coles the, uh, the the tap dancer we had a, a startling array of very proficient people in the dance world talking about Astaire. Leslie Caron, um, Jean Loring, and uh, Roland Petit. Um, there were a lot of people. There were a lot of very well known and well established uh, dance people in that show, including Nureyev. So uh, I, I don't think I don't think either was would choose one over the other. They they both a slightly different approach to uh, to his dancing, uh, the, and although they're historically separated, of course, because the the first show uh, was was his career up until he left RKO. So it, it's kind of around about 1940. It all pivots to a, a different approach to him. Well, he um, was. Uh, did he appreciate the the two, or did he? Uh, Appreciate one more than the other, do you know? We don't know. He never gave that indication. Well, he he wrote a letter to both of us that said, I saw both of them on the air out here in California, and you've done a wonderful job. All right. That's a way to what you like to hear. Well, my God. The letter letter is framed on my wall, believe me. Yes, and (laughs) and I have the copy on mine. It looks like the real, but it's the copy. Oh, well, what wonderful work that you did on that. And you mentioned Catherine Hepburn, and I um, I remember that you did uh, two, also two documentaries um, in which uh, Catherine Hepburn played a main part. Of course, the one all about her, Catherine Hepburn, all about me. Mm-hmm. And then the Spencer Tracy legacy, which is um, a tribute uh, by Catherine Hepburn. So, so let's talk a little bit about uh, Catherine Hepburn and um, what is your fondest memory about working with Catherine Hepburn, Joan? Oh, there are so many. I suppose one of them has to be the day she called me. And by the way, when you pick up the phone, you know, when, you, when, when, when we called her, you get yourself ready. 
when she calls you and she's on the other end of the phone and you answer it, you know, it's it's a bit of a shock. <laughs> so I picked <laughs> up the so. phone and she said, Joan, it's Kate Hepburn. Now that I have friends at public television, why don't we do a show together about Spencer? Well, Her I, idea. You know, well, exactly. And I thought, oh, my God, did I just hear that? And I said, Miss Hepburn, I hate, I don't know how I had the nerve to do this. I said, Miss Hepburn, I hate to do this, but could I put you on hold for one second while I tell somebody else on another line that I'll call them back? And she said, sure. So I pushed the hold button, and I screamed across the hall for David, who very calmly, as usual, walked into my office, and I said, she's on, Catherine Hepburn's just asked us to do a show about Spencer Tracy. He said, ask her if she'll host it. So I pressed the button. And I said, I'm back. Um, Miss Hepburn, would you be willing to host a show about Spencer Tracy? What the hell do you think I'm talking about? Of course I should host it. Come to tea tomorrow. <laughs> and that was the beginning of an odyssey. It took a long time to get that show together, but it was quite a remarkable program because she oh, in the past, as you, as you know very well, Betty Jo, everybody yeah. knew that there was a relationship between Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn, and they made a lot of movies together. But at that time, the, the gossip columnist never talked about it. It was like a sacred right. trust that we, we don't talk about Catherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy, unlike today, of course, when it would have been plastered everywhere. And so, uh, and, and if anybody interviewed her, for example, and wanted to talk about Tracy, other than Tracy the actor, that would be the end of the interview. She'd show him the door, or her the door, whoever the interviewer was. So for her to say to us, let's do a show about Spencer together, was a, a complete change of direction for her. And that she chose us to do it, of course, was a great honor. And we said to her, we came right out with it. We said, you've never talked about him before. Why are you willing to do that now? And she said, I could not talk about Spencer while Louise Tracy, who was Mrs. Spencer Tracy and never divorced from him, yes. um, I could not talk about Spencer while Louise Tracy was alive because it was important for her to remain Mrs. Tracy for the work she was doing. That She, uh, she and Spencer Tracy founded the John Tracy Clinic to help mm -hmm. the deaf children because their own son, John Tracy, uh, John Tracy was born profoundly deaf. And Hepburn yes. never wanted to get in the way of the work that, that Louise Tracy was doing. And by the time she asked us to do this program, Louise Tracy had passed away. And she had become friends with Spencer Tracy and Louise's daughter, Susie Tracy, who is still a friend of ours. Yes, you, you have made uh, quite a few friends. <laughs> <laughs> as, you were do, as you were doing these um, these marvelous uh, film And we portraits. did ask her why the gossip columnist, why she thinks the gossip columnist left them alone. And she said, because we never went out in public together. Never, never. Uh, we didn't flaunt very, it in people's faces. Uh, they were very discreet. There's, there's no doubt about that. But uh, regarding her, the documentary about Catherine Hepburn herself, David, I was interested about the uh, uh, kind of some of the problems that you had when um, Catherine Hepburn didn't want to use the mic. Oh, well, this was this was the uh, yes, this was the first time that she went on camera for that documentary about Spencer Tracy. Um, I'd said to her, and when we were talking about the script in New York, I said, Miss Hepburn, you don't have to worry about memorizing the script. We'll have it all on a teleprompter for you, and that'll be in front of the camera lens. And all you have to do is look at the camera and read the script. And I said, I, I, do you have any problem reading from a distance? She said, no, 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 I'm falling apart, but my eyesight is fine. So um, there came that moment, that early morning on the golf course at the Riviera Country Club in Los Angeles, when I was going to direct Catherine Hepburn for the very first time. Uh, I didn't sleep very well the night before, as you can imagine. <laughs> What what I didn't realize, and in fact, I didn't. Uh, it took me quite a while after to realize this. She was probably as nervous as I was because she was doing something she'd never done before. Yes, she, she was hosting a show, and she had to look into the camera lens. And of course, she'd been told never to do that as a, as a dramatic actress. Mm -hmm. Never look into the camera lens. Look into the camera lens, hosting the show, and talk to the viewer and read a prompter. So she was having to learn to do something new. And uh, when when she arrived on the set, I was busy with the with the cameraman lining up the shot. 
Joan comes over to me and says, David, David, we've got a problem. You have to come here. Hepburn's very unhappy. So I went over, and I'm hearing her berating our poor sound man, John Vincent, who was a sweet guy, who was trying to put a radio mic on her. She said, if I'd known I had to wear one of these, I would never agree to do this. They work in Spain, but they never work here. And I'm thinking, oh, my goodness. What's special about radio mics in Spain? I have no idea, but I wasn't going to ask the question at the time. Eventually, I managed to calm her down and persuade her to put on the radio mic. And, um, and, she, and then, we, then we set up in front of the camera. And uh, I said, let's just make sure you can read the prompt. And so I was standing next to her, and the camera was, what, about 10 or eight, 10 feet away. Mm-hmm. And I said to the prompter guy, okay, roll the script, please. Can't see that. I can't read it. Oh, dear. I'm thinking to myself, okay, Miss Hebben, let's just try a couple of paces forward. I couldn't move the camera because was, I was trying to match up a shot to lead into the uh, clip from Patton, the movie Matt Patton Mike. So mm-hmm. she stepped a couple of paces forward, and I said to the prompter guy, okay, let's try rolling the script again. This is absolutely hopeless. I can't see a thing. So I'm thinking to myself, oh, my goodness. This, this, the whole project was falling apart in front of my eyes. And then I said, uh, okay, Miss Hepburn, let's, let's try doing it without the script. You, you know what's going to happen here. You're going to explain to the viewers that uh, the two roles that you and Spencer played in the movie, um, why we're here on the golf course at the Riviera Country Club, and you lead us into the, what, the, what the characters were that you played, and then you just lead us into the clip. And so she said, yes, let's try that way. So as I'm walking towards the camera so I can look at her from the camera's viewpoint, I realize she started rehearsing. And she's walking towards the camera and she's telling the story and with great gusto and she's getting all the points right. I said, that was, I said, that was great. Let's try one more rehearsal. And she said, no, 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 just waste the film. Let's do it. And she did it impeccably. I still did two more takes just to be on the safe side. And she got better each time. What happened was she then realized she could do it. Yeah. And from that point on, she was a dream to work with. And, of course, my nervousness disappeared, too, because I realized we were getting on really well together. Uh, yes, you were. Was, yes, but that, 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 those, that first 10 to 15 minutes on the golf course were pretty nerve-wracking, but trust me. Well, I love a happy ending. <laughs> so that certainly was a wonderful documentary. Uh, you know what I thought? I thought was so. Uh, well, this is just kind of a, a special uh, thing that she said about um, Spencer Tracy that he was like a baked potato, mm-hmm. and she says she says, and I'm like a what is it? A, a ice cream sundae ice with cream whipped cream. With whipped cream, yes. <laughs> she saw herself as very light and sweet. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so they were they were definitely opposites, and what a relationship that they had. But your book is filled with so many things that surprised me, and of course I followed these <laughs> careers and uh, growing up seeing their films and everything. And this is what delighted me that I learned so much about uh, these people <laughs> that I hadn't heard about. One thing that I still have trouble believing. And, Joan, maybe you can explain how this happened, but uh, I did not know that um, Catherine Hepburn and Michael Jackson were friends. I mean, I can't wrap my uh, brain around that. Neither neither. did we, (laughs) until we had lunch at her place one day, and there was a book on the side table. And I said, oh, are you reading that book? And she said, no, Michael left it here. And I said, Michael? And she said, Oh, it's Michael Jackson. And, of course, you know, with her perfect sense of timing, she saw my eyebrows go up and David's. And I said, do you know Michael Jackson? And she said, yes, he's a good friend of mine. I said, you want to explain this one to me? It's not exactly the match made in heaven that I would ever think of. (laughs) And she told us that she met Michael Jackson while she was making On Golden Pond up at Squam Lake in New Hampshire, and he had been a friend already of Jane Fonda, who invited him up to the location. And then Jane suddenly announces to Kate that she has to go back to Los Angeles for the weekend, and she said to Kate, would you take care of Michael for the weekend? (laughs) (laughs) And Kate said, what am I supposed to do with this kid? I don't even know him. She said, you'll find things to do. He adores you. Well, 
first thing she did was take him to a laundromat when she saw that his room that Jane had found him in an attic somewhere because there oh. were, it, she saw clothes all over the floor, and she said, Michael, pick up this mess. And he, she said, don't you ever do your laundry? And he said, well, Miss Hepburn, somebody usually does that for me, you know, in that little voice of his. She said, come with me. And she took him to a public laundromat. Can you imagine this scene? We should have had oh. a camera. Oh, I, I, oh, I would so love to have filmed that scene. <laughs> I mean, and the reactions of the people. <laughs> yes. Can well, you imagine? Well, she taught him to do laundry. Then she invited him to dinner in New York when he was in New York, and then he invited her to attend the Madison Square Garden concert. Now, and I said, did you go? She said, yep. <laughs> I mean, the idea of Catherine Hepburn and her assistant, who was older than she. Now that's another story, Joan. <laughs> another camera should be there. And their niece, and her niece, who her great niece, who was 17 at the time, walking down the aisle of Madison Square Garden to a second or third row seat, had to had to be, you know, a scene for the ages. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they were friends. It was amazing. Yes, they were friends. <laughs> well, I I just I, as I I mean I I'm trying to visualize it definitely fine trying to visualize it but but there are just so many things like this that you relate in your book, and I want to, uh, again, say the name of it in the Company of Legends, because I, I hope all of my Movie Attic Headquarters listeners uh, order the book right away. I, I know it's available on Amazon.com, and uh, uh, is there another place where they can get it uh, yes, that you'd Barnes like to mention? Barnes & Noble has it, too. Yeah. There's probably and some Barnes bookstores, but uh, we don't know which ones. Uh, where they're actually carrying it, but it's definitely online at Barnes & Noble and Amazon is available. And also right, well, in, e- in ebook form, of course, in the Kindle and the Nook, I think. Great, yeah. I've read both versions. Did <laughs> 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 you really? I have it here. It's, I'm looking at it, and I, I turn back and read things over again because I, it's just one of one of my very favorite uh, books. I, it's here in a place of honor, right underneath this huge poster of uh, the Wizard of Oz. And, oh, uh, terrific. Both your book and the Company of Legends and this big, fo- this big poster of Wizard of Oz, they're, they're going to inspire me every day. And I, I wanted. Speaking of inspiring, we've uh, movie addicts are were inspired so by so many uh, movies by, uh, starring Jimmy Stewart, and we don't want to forget talking a little bit about uh, the the uh, portrait that you did of Jimmy Stewart and David. Um, what were the, what was the thing that uh, was a surprise uh, a surprise to you about uh, Jimmy Stewart? There were probably lots of them, but what was the oh, most there, surprising? Oh, there were many, and it was another of those projects that fell apart many times, then put, put pulled itself together, and we managed to get it moving. But when we when he agreed to do it, uh, after many ups and downs, uh, we went to his home on Roxbury Drive in Beverly Hills. And we were let in, and we went to the living room where his wife, Gloria, was waiting for us. Gloria was quite wonderful, by the way. She'd become very supportive and helpful. And she said, uh, just take a seat. Jimmy will be down in a moment. And uh, we're sitting there waiting, and I hear somebody coming down the stairs. And into the room walks this tall but bent-over old man, uh, looking very gray and definitely lacking in energy, and he's polite, and he says hello, and uh, we we talk about the project and what we want to do. But after we left, I said to Joan, I'm very worried. I, I, I doubt that he can hold together a two-hour special. And we sold PBS on the idea of Jimmy, Jimmy Stewart hosting a show not about hosting. himself. Not hosting. No, no. Uh, well, no, but participating in the show about yeah. himself. I'm sorry, Joan, not hosting. Mm. And I said, I'm not sure he can do it. Uh, he doesn't seem to have the energy or the, the wherewithal to handle this. But we didn't have a plan B, so we just we just pressed oh. ahead, and uh, eventually became the day when we were going to interview him on camera for the first time again in his home, and we'd set up the the lights and um, in, in, and the camera in his uh, den, and again I hear him coming down the stairs, but this time he's wearing his toupee. This time he's made oh. up. This time he's wearing his sports jacket and a tie. And into the room walks James Stewart, the movie star. 
Ah. A complete transformation. Full of oh, energy, wow. wit, and telling the most wonderful stories. And standing bolt upright. Yes. The, the bent old man <laughs> disappeared. I don't know where he went to, but he was not there that day. And he held that together through the entire shooting. Uh, the, the, for the following days, we, we did it the, on the Universal Backlot with Johnny Carson, who hosted it, the show. And he was remarkable. I, I mean, never for one minute did I think this man was running out of energy. I was the one that was getting tired, not him. <laughs> not Jimmy Stewart. Well, you mentioned Johnny Carson. That's a whole story, too, uh, Joan. What, what, else, what is all this about Johnny Carson not wanting to host, wanting to get uh, Cary Grant? <laughs> yes. How did Johnny you, how Carson? Did you talk to, Johnny yeah. Carson said yes uh, very quickly through a talent uh, executive at NBC whom we contacted and who gave our letter directly to Johnny. And a couple days later, Johnny said yes. And then he invited us to his home a couple weeks later, and we went to this gorgeous house that was still not quite finished. And he took us on a tour of the grounds and the tennis courts that he was having built, etc., etc. And then he said, let's go downstairs to the den. And we went down to this wonderful, comfortable den. By the way, on the landing was a full-size um, statue of his idol, Stan Laurel. Um, oh, and we went, really? Yeah. And we went down to the den, and we sat down, and he said, you know, I've been thinking, I think I'm the wrong guy to host this show. Can mm. you imagine what was going on when, in oh, our heads when God. he said that? My heart sank oh. to the floor. We were just yeah. speechless, and as you probably can tell, we're not usually speechless. Um, no. <laughs> and um, he said, you see, you just did a show where Catherine Hepburn hosted a program about Spencer Tracy. She worked with him. She not only knew him, but she worked with him in films. I've never worked with Jimmy Stewart other than when he comes on the show, even though we're friends. And by that statement, he gave us a couple seconds to... Uh, recover from the shock of what he just said, and we said to him, Johnny, I said, Johnny, you know, trying to replicate Catherine Hepburn hosting a program about Spencer Tracy is impossible, and we don't want to even try that. What you represent is every man out there that's ever enjoyed a Jimmy Stewart movie. Only you happen to be a lucky person. You became his friend. That's what we want to get across. And he nodded, and he agreed, and then he said, I still think you need Cary Grant. And we said, Cary Grant? I mean, if Johnny never did anything outside of The Tonight Show except host the Oscars once at a blue moon, Cary Grant never appeared on television, period, ever. (laughs) And so we left Johnny's house that day so depressed because David felt that even if Cary Grant said yes, which would have been the coup of all time, that people would watch the show because Cary Grant never appeared on television. They'd be watching for him instead of the subject, Jimmy Stewart. Absolutely. And if if Cary Grant said no, which was 99 and three-quarter percent that he would, then we were worried that Johnny Carson was going to run all over town trying to find another replacement for himself, and it could take weeks or months, and we didn't have (laughs) weeks or months. So the next day, the phone rang in my hotel room in California, and Johnny called and said, well, I've called Carrie, and his housekeeper told me he's out of town doing that one-man show about his life and career that he does at colleges, and mm-hmm. so, and he won't be back for a while, so, and with Johnny's perfect t- t- timing, so I guess you're stuck with me. <laughs> and I, again, I was stunned. And I said, finally, when I recovered from that little next shock, I said, Johnny, you don't have any idea how happy I am to be so stuck. <laughs> That's right. That the, the other wouldn't wouldn't have worked out at all. So I'm, I'm so I'm so glad that Johnny Carson stayed with it. And well, Joan, I wanted to tell you too that one of my favorite parts of your book. Is the one about your obsession with the paper towels of celebrities? <laughs> David doesn't get it. I know. I, I think that uh, our listeners would would get a big kick out of that. Uh, could you? Uh, how did that first start? Uh, did it ha- have something to do with Frank Sinatra? <laughs> no, it actually started with. Uh, yes, it had to do. Yeah, with, Frank Sinatra was, was the Frank first Sinatra. paper You're towel right. job. Um, David, we got to Frank Sinatra's house, and a very nice man with a lovely smile led us through the gate to the estate, but he wears a holster and a gun. 
And <laughs> he had monitors all over the property in his guardhouse, and he told us, set up by the pool and don't take beauty shots here because we don't allow that for security reasons. Yeah, just, just, just point the camera at the chair where Mr. Sinatra's going to sit and don't point it anywhere else. <laughs> that was the instruction. So, so it was very clear we, had, we, were, we were walking on eggs a little bit in this place. And David said to me, Joan, don't even take Because, you know, we walked around with a still camera everywhere we went. David said, don't even take your camera out of your bag. Otherwise, it's going to be confiscated. And so I didn't. But David was busy setting up with the crew, and I needed to use a ladies' room. And a maid walked by, and I asked her if I could please use a ladies' room. And she said, sure, follow me. Well, David told me later, he looked around and didn't see me, and he thought, oh, my God, I wonder if Joan's trying to tour the house just to get a look at it. <laughs> he knows you. He knows me very well. Well, I went to the ladies' room, and they had beautiful. It was beautiful. It was a beautiful bathroom, I might add. And on the counter, it had these beautiful, splashy-colored paper towels that you use to wipe your hands and throw them in the wastebasket. And I thought, hmm, I'll never be in Frank Sinatra's house again. I might as well take two of these paper towels and keep them as souvenirs, and I'll give one to David. Well, I forgot until we got back to Los Angeles after the interview, and I said, oh, David, I forgot to tell you what I stole from Frank Sinatra's house. Well, as I told you, David is a very calm person. I never had a reaction like this before or since. Joan, what did you take from this house? Are you out of your mind? (laughs) Heart attack. I was being funny. And so I pulled out the two paper towels. And he said, oh, my God. I said, David, how long have we been working together? Since when do you think you're attached to a kleptomaniac? I said, they're paper towels. You throw them in the wastebasket. Well, following that, I took paper towels from the White House. (laughs) The dispenser in the White House has paper towels that are embossed with the gold presidential seal. So I took paper towels from the White House. I took paper towel from Gene Kelly's house, from Barbara Streisand's house, and I probably have a few more. David oh. winds up throwing them in the garbage. I put them in scrapbooks. There's probably going to be, oh, be a museum of paper towels one day. <laughs> yes, from does not paper. Get the, he does not get my obsession with paper towels at all. <laughs> I, I could see that, but I, I understand it, and uh, I wouldn't mind having a paper towel from Gene Kelly <laughs> so, because he is really uh, my my favorite. And mm-hmm. I was wondering, I want to, the, the time is going by so fast, but I want to touch bases with uh, with you uh, regarding um, uh, the uh, Lorna Luff, the help that she gave on the um, on the uh, on one of your uh, documentaries. And she's a friend of our show. She's uh, we've done a tribute uh, for uh, to uh, Judy Garland, and Lorna was on the show to help us with it. And she she's just a dear. And um, how what would you say? David was her most important contribution to the uh, work that you did about uh, Judy Garland. Well, well, we were doing this show about Judy Garland, and we'd we'd had a list of interviewees, and one of them was Lorna. And we actually went out to California and interviewed her, and and her brother Joe. Um, and then it was sometime later that we said, you know, maybe Lorna will be a good host for the show. She she, she fits the bill perfectly. She's very bright. She's she, she oh, knows yeah. the subject matter well, obviously. Oh, for and sure. we asked her to host a show, and she agreed. And um, she came to New York, and we filmed her in the middle of a freezing winter in New York City. But uh, but she was a real trooper. She never complained at all, and uh, she did all her on-camera stuff. And then sometime later, was it some, how much later was it, Joan? No, it was, yeah, was sometime it, later, yeah. yeah. Sometimes later, we, we asked her to come and record the voiceover narration session. After we'd done the show, the show was pretty much put, almost put together. It was a rough version of the show, but we just needed her voiceover. So as we were as she was rec- as she was recording the voice, we were playing her the, the bits of the show that led into it. And, and at one point, we came to the performance of Over the Rainbow, because you can't do a show about Judy Garland without having a performance of Over the Rainbow. Mm-hmm. But it was a, the performance from the Judy Garland television series in which mm-hmm. uh, when she and Joe, and Joe in particular was, very, well, they were both young, but Joe was very young, and he kept interrupting the song. And she said, you can't possibly use that version. I said, well, it's the only only one we've got because your dad won't let us use the one that we really wanted to use. 
which is when Judy's in the tramp costume, and it's the end of it, the very first television special she ever did. It's a very moving, wonderful version mm-hmm. of the Rainbow, very different from anything else she'd ever done. And uh, she said, uh, we, we said that we'd asked Sid for it, but Sid said, you can't have that. It's my most prized possession. Well, mm-hmm. Lorna says, what time is it in California? No, what time is it now here? <laughs> yeah, what time is it now here? Because and Joe, you pick up the story. She said, "What time is it?" And and, and David said, "It's two o'clock." Why? She said, "Good, just in time for the afternoon edition that had for the New York po- of the New York Post, where which will have a headline: Daughter kills father. Get him on the phone." <laughs> <laughs> so we dialed Sid, and she started. Sydney. <laughs> I have your only grandson. If you ever plan to see him again, get that, and I won't use the word, tape into FedEx right now and send it to to here. Send it here to New York. I want it here by tomorrow morning. And he's on the other end saying, now, Lorna, calm down. Don't tell me to calm down. I want that tape sent to Joan and David now. Well, the next day oh. it was there. Well, that, that may not be the most important, but it was certainly a very significant contribution by Lorna to the show because it was, it's a stunning performance, and it, it, it oh, ends yes. the show. Oh, yes, and hooray so, for Lorna. I, yes. I, just, I just think the world of her. And oh, speaking Lorna's, of Judy, and speaking of Judy Garland. Lorna's terrific. Oh, absolutely. I, the, here's a big surprise in your book, too. I mean, like I'm telling the listeners, it's just full of surprises, but there was a rumor that uh, Judy Garland actually sang Over the Rainbow on the phone to President Kennedy when he was feeling kind of uh, down. And uh, you didn't know whether that was true or not. And uh, I, I just admire the persistence that you put in, the research that you did to find out if that was true. So, Joan, can you review the steps that went into that? It started with a letter, well, Liza tells that, Liza Minnelli, the eldest daughter, as you know, of Judy Garland, Mm -hmm. told that story about her mother singing on the phone to the President of the United States to the only, at that time, authorized biographer of Judy Garland in a book called Judy by Gerald Frank. And we read it, and I called up Lorna, and Lorna said, Joan, I have to tell you something. There are times that this family is filled with people who lie. (laughs) And I said to her, Lorna, are you telling me your sister didn't tell the truth? She says, I don't know. I wasn't in the room, but it's probably true. But I'm telling you, don't always believe everything you read or you hear. And it was such a Uh wonderful story. And I said, Lorna, Lorna, this is not giving me a warm, secure feeling since you're hosting the show and we're doing a program about your mother. Please tell me you're not telling me, you know, untruths. She said, no, 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 no. I'm joking, really. Well, I, I don't know. But anyway, I set about to try to prove this story. Because neither Judy Garland nor the president were alive at the time we were doing this program, so we couldn't mm-hmm. ask any of the two par- uh, principals. So um, I started with a letter to Jackie Onassis, not telling her that Liza was the source of the story, and I ended up talking to Caroline Kennedy, who led me to one of JFK's closest aides in the White House, who was then working at the Kennedy Library in Massachusetts, named David Powers, who confirmed the story because he said he was in the Oval Office when the calls came and the president would hold the phone away from his ear so he could hear her sing. A wonderful story that turned out to be true. So nobody was lying about that story. Oh, so so Lorna didn't have to worry about that that being a lie. <laughs> Good. Oh, and I loved I just love the way you you pursued that. Can can you believe that um, we only have ten more minutes of the oh extended hour that we oh have here, goodness. and we and we could you know we could do another hour more more than that about uh, about all your experiences and so i want to spend the rest of the time for you to um tell our listeners what's the most important thing that you 
would like them to know about the, the book in the Company of Legends, and also anything else you would like to add, uh, questions that I should have asked and haven't asked. So I'm going to start with you, uh, David, and then and then we'll go to Joan. Well, Betty Jo, when we first started doing this book, I said to Joan, you know, we have a few stories, but they're probably, you know, maybe 1,800 pages. We really stretch it out. Well, we we've tossed out a lot of stories, and it's over. It's it's almost 400 pages. So yes, there are is. a lot of things in the book. I think it. I think it. I think we were astounded when we started writing it all down because when you're when you're doing the job, when you're working. You don't think about the fact that you're work, that you're actually in the company of these amazing people and that you're working with them, and this this is an experience which will seem quite astounding when you look back on it, and uh, these experiences, I should say, there were many of them. And when we wrote the book, we I think we were surprised ourselves about all the things that had happened. But I, I think what we would like people to get from the book is the the feel the feeling that they were with us when all this happened um we 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 try to set the scene in, in each case and and tell a story and if if the reader can feel that they're in the room with us or on the phone with us or whatever the situation is i think we'll have accomplished what we're looking out to do because these these are real these are these are real people they're legends of course they're legends they were astounding people but in the end, they're all human beings, and um, and this, I, I think the humanity comes through in the stories. I hope it does. Joe, what oh, do you think? You well, definitely hooked me. So uh, do you uh, feel the same way as uh, David does, Joan? I do, and I'd just like to add that we, in writing the book, were blown away by something else, and that is the amount of trust people gave us. You know that we were never asked, Betty Jo, by anybody, what we were using, what clip we were using, what stills we were using. Nobody ever asked us what we're putting in the show or what we're not using, and nobody asked us to use or not use anything. Hmm. And that, that to this day is very moving to me because we're telling other people's life stories with and on top of which we've never done an unauthorized biography so we were doing it with the people or if the people were no longer alive like Humphrey Bogart we were doing it with people very close to them and for them to have trusted us and not said well aren't you going to use this clip aren't you going to use that still I mean what do you think about that story aren't you going to put that in never asked us a single question never and I think that the book is um, is a reflection of that trust. And I hope that nobody that reads this book feels that we've betrayed pr- trusts. We have not betrayed. We've set out to not do a tell-all, kiss-all, National Enquirer type of yeah, book. Now, if anybody's looking for the trashy stories, they're not going to find them here. These, these are just experiences that we had. Um, and and to, to almost come full, full circle from one of the original things that we said when we were talking to you, what, some 40 minutes ago, <laughs> Betty Jo, yes. and uh, I mentioned Pat Wymore, um, who eventually uh, agreed to participate in the show about Errol Flynn. We became very good friends with Pat, and so I said to to Joan, I said, no, Errol Flynn was, was but no angel, and if we're going to tell his life story, there's going to be some dark stuff that we have to talk about at times. So we, we confronted Pat. We said, Pat, you know, we, we, we're going to be telling the truth about Errol Flynn. And she said to us, of course you have to tell the truth about him. He was a very complex man, and I want you to tell the real story. And Joan, what, what did she say at the end? Well, she flew to New York from Jamaica, West Indies, to watch the premiere of the program. David gave a little party, and she was there watching it with us. And when it was over... She perhaps gave us the most meaningful review of all the reviews we had for that program. And it, she said, he would have been so proud. Nobody before ever took him seriously as an actor. And he was a really good actor. But all that nonsense yes. that went on in his life with the women and the drugs and the liquor. By the way, which is in our program. That's which in the is program, in our program, too. But we really wanted to focus on Errol Flynn, the actor. And he was a really good actor. I think we were astounded I, by that. We knew he was a great yeah. swashbuckler. He was this this vivid, larger-than-life, handsome character from those movies. 
But I think it was a revelation to us that how good he was. He was a really good oh, actor. Absolutely. And that he, was a he very was. meaning that was very meaningful for her to say that. That was a great review from his widow. Well, you well deserved, definitely well deserved, and you've certainly earned my trust and I I know that our listeners will trust me when I tell them that they should order their copy of In the Company of Legends right away. They won't be sorry. And I see we only have a couple of minutes left, so I want to give a big shout-out to Joan Kramer and David Healy for being such awesome guests. This has been one of my favorite, my all-time favorite discussions here on Movie Addict Headquarters. And I want to give special thanks to the folks at Blog Talk Radio for their support and to Nikki for everything she does for our show and to our chatters and other listeners. And I hope everyone enjoyed the show. I know I sure did. I do want to encourage you to check out some other radio shows, including Comedy Concepts, hosted by the hilarious Nancy Lombardo right here on Blog Talk Radio every Monday and Friday morning at 10.30 Eastern Time, as well as the Mom and Pop Shop Show, hosted by Mr. Showbiz himself, George Bettinger, on Dreamstream Radio every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time. And don't forget all the diverse shows on the Wacko Network here on Blog Talk Radio. There's something for everybody in the Wacko wheelhouse. Please come back next time for a lively discussion about top film comedians featuring Nancy Lombardo, who, by the way, has been in the chat room during the entire show. Thank you so much, Nancy. She will be here next um, uh, next time on our show with George Bettinger and Steve Mendoza. So be prepared for lots of laughs. It will be uh, it will be great fun. Well, that's all for now, folks. So in honor of Joan Kramer and David Healy and Hollywood legends, let's close the show with my favorite version of you guessed it, Hooray for Hollywood. <laughs> Thank you.